Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Psalm 133. Psalm 133 this morning, and uh, as I said already, and even as we've heard it read, it's about unity and about God's desire for unity and harmony among his people. That's an important thing, isn't it? It's a huge thing. And sadly, uh, you look at so many churches, and if we're honest, we've had those days in our past where there wasn't unity and where there's fighting and bickering about stupid things that don't matter. But God's heart is pleased when there's unity, when there's harmony. So we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at this psalm. And uh, as we do, we're going to make some observations about it as we have in the past. And then at at different times as well, I'm just going to talk a little bit about things that we do to preserve unity in our church and uh, things that we try to avoid uh, to protect unity in our church. And that goes for us corporately and us as individuals. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Well, with that, let me pray. And then uh, we're going to jump into this psalm and work through it together. Father, thanks for Jesus. Um, Thank you that it's in him that we have unity. It's in him that uh, uh, we're all adopted into your family. And Lord, uh, like any family, we have our issues. And uh, but we have a good dad in you and we have a great older brother in Jesus And uh, you work continually by your spirit to bring unity in us. So help us to choose those things as well. Holy Spirit, I pray today that you might uh, use me and speak through me and even to me as I teach. I pray that you would continue to lend your protection to our church and continue to give a spirit of unity here. Um, Father, I pray that for other churches in our area too, that, that you might bring unity to them and joy to them, even right now as they're worshiping you. Uh, I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. He loves to divide and to cause derision and accusation and loves to see your church in chaos. Did you bind them from this place today and teach our hearts? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 133. It's short, so I'm just going to read it again. Is that okay? Psalm 133. Behold, David writes... How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. 
It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing. Life forevermore. Life forevermore. Well, you notice right at the beginning it says a song of ascent. One of the psalms of ascent, in other words. And we've talked about this before. We had another one. But basically these were the psalms that would have been sung... Uh, either as people were pilgriming to Jerusalem and ascending to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem's on the top of a hill, or why they were already there. And so it's, it's songs, sometimes it's to pass the time, I think. Sometimes, though, it's to reinforce the goodness of their God in their minds, but to worship as they're going to Jerusalem and to worship when they're in Jerusalem. You also notice, just kind of in the heading there, that it's of David. So our author this week is King David again. And what we're going to see is that David's going to tell us, kind of in this order, how good and pleasant unity is among Jesus' people, among God's people, Jesus' church, and in his case, Israel. Then he's going to give us a couple images, uh, two images, and and both of them, especially the first one, are going to feel kind of strange or seem strange to us. If you're wondering about verse 2 and oil on the beard, and that's strange. To us, anyway, but I'll try to explain it and help you see. But he gives us a couple images of unity and how good and pleasant it really is. And then finally, he's going to remind us of the blessing that comes from unity in the church. From the blessing that comes. So if we're going to make some observations, let me first make this one. Number one, and you're like, boy, Josh, you did a lot of work to figure out this one. Unity in the church is good and pleasant. Right out of the text, isn't it? Unity in the church is good and pleasant. Would you agree with that? Would you agree that it's good and pleasant when there's unity? Or do you prefer strife? Sadly, you know, it seems like sometimes there's people that they do, doesn't it? Like they're not happy unless everybody around them is in chaos. And if everything's peaceful, so then they create chaos. I hope that's not you. I hope you enjoy unity and you enjoy peace and harmony. Well, when David writes about unity, when brothers dwell in unity... And ladies, when he says brothers, he just means family. He means family. It's not just brothers, brothers and sisters. It's uncertain exactly what he had in mind by unity. And here's why I say that. It could have referred uh, to people living together as a family, like in their ancestral land. So within each of the 12 tribes of Israel, there were 12 tribes, all descending from, uh, from 12 sons of Jacob. And it could be that each of those, there's different spots in the Bible where it talks about sometimes the land wouldn't fully support that whole family and there was some division and sometimes there's fighting within some of those tribes. But, but it could mean unity within those tribes. Maybe that's it. And, and this idea of family. That could have been a, a way we could have taken this psalm and taught on unity in our families. The other idea potentially that David means by unity, and I think chances are he means all of these, but is unity of the entire nation of Israel as a whole. So with all the different tribes of Israel. Now you got to understand something. We, we don't always think about this, but each of the tribes of Israel was, was different. And so to create unity among all these people is a big task. In fact, um, before Jacob's death, he speaks a blessing to each one of his sons who become kind of the, the patriarchs of their tribe. And in Genesis 49, 28, it says that he blessed each of them with a blessing that was suitable to him. Which tells me that each of them was different. And so uh, Jacob, when he blessed them, blessed them in a way that was suitable for them. Well, you'd find out each of their tribes ends up being different too. Jacob uh, relates or, or likens each of them. And then later in scripture, each of the tribes get likened to animals. You ever notice that? 
I bet you know Judah. What was Judah? A lion. Judah was a lion. Issachar, do you know what he was? A strong donkey. Maybe a little stubborn. Maybe a little stubborn. Naphtali, uh, that tribe was a doe compared to a doe. Benjamin, a ravenous wolf. Through all of Israel's history, we see tribal decisions and tribal heroes reflecting kind of that overarching identity or grace, whatever you want to call it, of their tribe. For example, references to the tribe of Dan reflect their ability to judge and to fight. Samson, a guy from the tribe of Dan, was a more familiar judge of Israel and well-known for his aggressiveness and his strength. And the same thing happens in churches and in families. We're known sometimes we're different. We have different gifts, different abilities, different things we like. And bringing unity to all those things can be tricky. Well, maybe David's seeing unity of the entire nation of Israel as a good thing in the sight of the Lord. I would agree, wouldn't you? Unity among churches in our community. Whether we agree on everything or not, we agree in who Jesus is, and that's a source of unity. That's a good thing. But the third option, maybe it's individual tribes, maybe it's the whole nation. It could simply be he's referring to the nation of Israel living together for this week in Jerusalem. That part is certainly in his mind as they all pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they're living there together and they they travel there together and how great and wonderful this unity is when everyone comes together to what? To worship, to worship. It gives you an idea of maybe where the source of their unity would be found, doesn't it? Not maybe in all of their different identities or different personalities and different likes and different interests or different places they live, but but in who they worship. And we're going to see that. That's, that's true for our church too. I wonder for us if, if this, this, this wouldn't be a good uh, verse maybe even just to put up on the door as we walk in. How, how, how great it is, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters come together and dwell in unity to worship Jesus. That's what he's describing. It's good and it's pleasant. Good and pleasant. David's saying this, it's unity among God's people is good and pleasant. In other words, it brings joy. It brings joy. It causes pleasure. By its very nature, it's good. In fact, the word that he uses here for good and then for precious in the next verse is the same word that shows up in Genesis 1 and 2 for God said, uh, let there be light. And then he said it was what? Good. It's the same Hebrew word. The, the New Living Translation translates it wonderful here, which I think that's a really good translation too, a neat way to think about it, even a neat way to think about Genesis. Uh, God said, let there be light. There was light, and it was wonderful. Wonderful. How wonderful it is when brothers dwell in unity. How good and pleasant. His creation is wonderful, and so is unity among his people, and sadly, it's rare. Sadly, it's rare. Because as his people, we're family. Did you notice how he describes us? What does he describe us as? How good when who dwells in unity? Brothers. Brothers. David's saying that God's people are family. We're family. Now, he may be relating this also to individual families, but I think also to God's family. And you need to know if you've trusted Jesus Christ, you've been adopted into his family. Did you know that? With all the rights, all the inheritance... 
You're his. You're adopted as, you were a, as if you were a son with full inheritance, in other words. David recognized the church's family. Paul did in much of his writing. He called the church his brothers and sisters regularly. The writer of Hebrews starts off chapter 13, let brotherly love continue. When you, when you understand the church's family, how does that affect our unity? How does it affect our unity? Think about it for a second with me. Think with me about family. Now, some of you look at our church at Wawasee Bible and you go, oh, it's a big family. <laughs> yeah, it is a big family. And guess what? It's a growing family. It's a growing family. But it's family. It's family. That's why in addition to big meetings on Sundays, we have little meetings during the week called 110 Community Groups. Are you involved in one? That's where you can go to be known and to do life with other people. Why would you do that? Why would you want to be known? Because that's what families do. You're known by your family. You do life together with your family. And families, you know what they do? A good, healthy family, they break bread around the table together. They love one another and they serve one another. And you know what, you know what else? They drive one another crazy. That's what a good family does. You're like, oh, I, see, I went to a 110 group one time, and I don't know about those people. They drove me crazy. Welcome to family. Welcome to family. That's what family is. Family is where you're yourself. Family is uh, where you connect with other people and love them, and they see you for who you really are, and they love you anyway. That's incredible. Family, uh, family is where people drive us nuts, isn't it? Who drives you more crazy than your family? You're like, hmm, probably nobody. Family's for your sanctification. It's to make you more like Jesus. To learn to love and to live with people that, that sometimes drive you crazy. And guess what? The church, God says, is a family. So when there's, when there's conflict sometimes, when you don't agree with everyone sometimes, you don't see eye to eye with everyone sometimes, they kind of just get under your skin sometimes. It's your brother and sister. Welcome to family. What do you still do? You still love them. You're still committed to them. You're still loyal to them. You're still faithful to them. When you fight with them, you fight like family. When you argue with them, you argue like family. When you celebrate, you celebrate like family. Are you getting the picture? How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Don't walk into church. Maybe you're new. Don't, don't walk in with this idealistic, judgmental view like, uh, the church is here to meet my needs. No, it's not. It's here to worship Jesus. And we're here to love and care for one another. And that's how some of our needs are met, is through Jesus, through one another. But it's not designed specifically for you, tailored towards you. It's a family. And everybody in a family, you know what people have to do in a family? They have to do some chores. Sometimes you have to pick up after yourself. Sometimes you have to do the dishes. Sometimes you have to go get your own food out of the fridge. Sometimes it's just leftovers. That's family. It's not always going to be perfect, but, but come with that idea of the church as family, as family. Messed up people who love one another and more importantly, love and are loved by Jesus. Think of this as family again, too, when you think of unity. Um, those of you who are maybe older in your faith, you, you know what the Bible says you're like in our family? The Bible says you're like older brothers and sisters. Those of you who are younger in your faith. You know what the Bible says of you? He says that you're, uh, God says that you are like younger brothers and younger sisters. And what do, in a good, healthy family, what do the older brothers and sisters do for the younger brothers and sisters? They look after them. 
They come alongside them. They help them. When they do something stupid, they come along and they say, hey, that was dumb. I love you. They rub their head and then they get on their way and help them get things right. If you're an older brother or sister, are you pouring into those who are younger who need you? That creates unity in our church. Did you know that? I hope you would. If you're young, are you smart enough to recognize you need help? I hope so. That as a young pastor, I need help. You all should be nodding at that because it's true. But, but I just want you to hear this and we'll keep going that, that my heart for a church, our church is, is for a heart of a family. That I want you to love one another. I want you to recognize that it's not always going to be perfect. But we need you. We need you to serve. We need you to, to chip in. We need you to, to, to pick up after yourself, for lack of a better way to say it, and, and be part of the family. So find a place where you can do that. You, you should get connected in a 110 group somehow. I hope you would if you haven't. Be known. Be loved. And this relates to unity in so many ways when we see ourselves as a family. Because when, when we're a family, then we, we work together for unity in our family. Because honestly, you think about your own family. If, do you prefer it to have unity or disunity? I mean, if you can work for unity in your family, if, if you're a good mom, you're a good dad, that's what you do, right? You, you try to resolve problems. You try to make things right so that there's unity there. And that's not only better for your family, it's better for anyone else who comes in to visit your home once in a while. Because they see and sense, this, this family is different. There's unity there. What a great place. And unity and harmony is God's design for our homes and for our church. A home that's good and pleasant, a church that's good and pleasant is a godly one. Do you know how I know that? Because God is described as good and pleasant. Psalm 135, a couple, couple of psalms later, praise the Lord for the Lord is good. Sing to, the, sing to his name for it is pleasant. Pray for unity in our church. Pray for us to see one another and love one another and treat one another as family. And, and pray that, by the way, for other churches. Because when there's greater unity in all of our churches, there's greater glory to Jesus and more people meet him and our whole community is better. And God is glorified. There's refreshment visiting a family where there's unity. You know that you're loved. You know that you are loved. Behold, David writes, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Your translation, instead of dwell, it might say sit together or eat together. That's the idea of family again. To sit or to live. That Hebrew word can be translated either way. The idea in dwelling together is that it ties our hearts together. So unity in the church is good and pleasant. A second observation I see here is that unity in the church uh, is pleasing to God. Because not only is it good, but it's pleasant. In other words, it's pleasing. It's pleasing to us for sure, but it's also pleasing to God. In fact, it's it's what Jesus prayed for you and for me. Did you know that? You, are you familiar with John chapter 17? John chapter 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus that we have in Scripture. And one of the, one of the, the recurring themes in his prayer, it's the night before he's about to be crucified. So you can imagine the most important things to him are probably on his mind. The, most, the, the, the recurring theme that seems to keep coming up is this idea of unity in his high priestly prayer. He knows he's going to die. He knows what's coming in the next 24 hours, even less than that. 
And what does he pray for? He prays for unity in his church. He prays for unity. Verses 21 through 23 of chapter 17, Jesus says to his father, may they all be one. May they all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be one in us so that the world may believe you sent me. See, when there's unity in our church, more people meet Jesus because they see God to be good. When there's unity, more people meet Jesus so that the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you've given me, Jesus prayed. May they be one as we are one. I in them, you're in me. May they be made completely one. He just says it over and over and over. So that the world may know you've sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. If unity is important to Jesus, it should be important to us. Let me ask you, what are you doing to contribute to the unity of our church? Or maybe if you're visiting from another church, what are you doing to contribute to the unity of your church? Are you doing anything? Are you doing anything? Well, you know, there's a lot of things I could list here, and I made a small one of things that rob churches of unity. Do you want to hear them? I think you'll know them already without me even saying them, but uh, no particular order. One of the things that robs churches of unity is people who are on power trips. Would you agree? Whether it's a pastor, whether it's a leader, whether it's a lay person, it doesn't matter if it's a power trip. Like, I, I've got power, I'm in charge, my way or the highway, figure it out or get out. Power trips cause all kinds of problems in a church. Another one I wrote down, I just kind of came up with a random list here the other night. Gossips. Gossips cause disunity in the church. You know, your conversation, somebody walks by. They're around the court. Do you know what I heard about them? Do you know about them? Do you know what they did? Do you know what they're doing this week? Have you seen how big their house is? Have you seen the car they drive? How do they pay for that? That's none of your business. That should be your reply. That should be your reply. You should be happy for them if they've got a nice house and a nice car. That's, that's God's grace. Good, great for them. Be joyful. You would be for a family member, I hope. But gossips cause all kinds of disunity. Because they don't speak what's true. And if you want to preserve unity, when you hear someone gossiping, shut it down. (laughs) Turn and walk away or just go, you know what? I I don't want to hear it. Thanks. Thanks. Love you. I love you. Your family. I don't need to hear that. Thanks. Doing too much as a church can cause disunity. When we're trying to, to have a ministry for this group and 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 this group, and, this group, and everybody's exhausted and we're, we're spreading out in 14,000 different directions but not making any ground and it causes disunity because we're all doing our own thing. Sometimes, uh, uh, let's see, comparison can cause disunity in a church. Comparison to other people or comparison to other churches. Good or bad. Boy, I wish, I wish we could have music like that church. I'm guilty of this. I, I wish we could have preaching like that church. I wish we could have this like that church. Maybe it's negative comparison. I'm glad we're not like that church. Both are unhealthy and they cause disunity because they turn your eyes outward instead of working on your family and keeping your eyes on Jesus. Uh, some of my list here are duplicates, so that's one. 
I'm skipping here. Um, you know what the big one is, though? The big one simply, and I'll end with this one, is just getting our eyes off of Jesus. When Jesus isn't the center of what we're doing, when Jesus isn't lifted up in our preaching, in our teaching, in our prayer, when his grace isn't front and center, we lose our way in a hurry. Is, is it good to have all kinds of things going on that are blessing? Yeah, it is. It's great. But, but how does that tie back into to making Jesus look great? When we talk about potentially adding on to our facility in the next year, how does that help people meet Jesus and know Jesus? How is Jesus made great by that? Not how are we more comfortable? How is Jesus exalted? We've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. That brings unity. I'm going to jump ahead here for a second and dive into this. Because here's, here's where this, this really messes us up. I've talked about this before, but I'm going to talk about this for just a little bit here, and then we'll get back into the psalm, okay? Sorry, I'm, I'm preaching, and I'm ranting a little bit today. This idea, I want to talk a little bit about your thing, my thing, and our thing. Your thing, my thing, and our thing. Here's what I mean by that. Well, first, let's start with my thing. And my thing and your thing really are kind of the same thing, but one is yours, one's mine. My thing, what I mean by that, could be a lot of different things, Right? It could be uh, whatever you like to do, whatever is energizing to you, whatever you love, whatever you're passionate about, that's your thing. And that's, it can be a really good thing. Maybe you would fill in the blank and you would say, my thing is fishing. My thing is hunting. My thing is camping. My thing is uh, some type of sport or athletic event. My thing is, uh, what, what would you fill in the blank for your thing? My, my thing is gardening. Maybe it's a cause. My thing is serving these people in that way. And my thing is loving these people and serving in this ministry. And uh, my thing is being involved in, in this cause uh, politically or whatever else. And, and that's my thing. And I get excited about it. And you know what? Usually most of the things that we say are my things, the majority of them are really, really good things. Would you agree? Some of the things I listed, there's, there's nothing wrong with any of them. They're all good things. Now, the, the problem is, though, that there's another thing that I would call our thing. And our thing is the overall mission of the church. That's our thing, collectively. What's our thing? Our thing is inviting people to follow or to, to know Jesus, to love Jesus, and inviting them to follow him with us. That's our thing. In inviting people to follow Jesus with us, to love Jesus, to follow him with us. That's our thing. That's what we're united around, is Jesus and making disciples who make disciples. That's our thing. And the problem is, see, when your thing takes precedence over our thing, then our thing gets destroyed and so does unity in our church. You see how that happens? There's a a lot of ways that this could happen. Um, I mean, what is it? What's your thing? What are you motivated about? What are you excited by? See, what happens in every church is everybody's got your thing. And your thing might be, uh, again, you love this mode of children's education. So you want to take your thing. Here's where it causes problems. You want to take your thing and make it our thing. You want to take your thing and make it my thing so that it becomes our thing. And so when everybody else doesn't educate their children the way that you educate your children, then, oh, that's messed up. Everybody should be doing it this way because that's my thing. No, no, no. They don't have to. That's your thing. And that's a good thing. That's great. High five for you. Thumbs up. But that's your thing. That's not our thing. Our thing is to love Jesus and to make disciples. 
Don't try to take your thing and make it our thing. And the one thing that's tricky for me as a pastor is I want to encourage you to serve and to do and to be excited about your thing. But I got to be careful sometimes how I do that so that when you hear me encourage you, you don't hear, my thing's going to become his thing and that's going to become our thing. Am I making sense? Because uh, uh, he, he said he liked it. He said, he, oh, I bet he's going to give my, I'm going to get a seat at the board. I'm going to get platform time and, and, and my business, my whatever, fill in the blank. That's going to become our thing. Yes. No. Our thing is Jesus. Our thing is making disciples. Our thing is honoring him. Now, if you have your thing, whether that's uh, all the things I listed or 100,000 others, Go do it. Do it to the best of your ability. Do it to the glory of God. Take your money and invest it there. Take your friends, bring them along. Take your passion and your energy and put it there. Do it. I'm so excited for you. Do it and do good and honor Jesus in it. But don't expect the rest of the church to come along to do your thing because our thing together is not your thing. It's making disciples who love and honor Jesus. Amen? Our thing is exalting Jesus Christ. And our thing is greater than my thing or your thing. Jesus is first. And that brings me to point number three. Focusing on Jesus promotes unity because unity, true unity in a church is only found in Jesus Christ. It's only found in Jesus Christ. Look at verse two. Now now David's starting to give us some pictures of unity. He says, it's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now, when you read that, do you think that's strange? He goes from talking about unity to uh, dousing some guy with oil, smearing it all over his face. What, what is this? Getting it on his beard. Not only does it sound strange, it just sounds messy. Well, let's unpack it a little bit. First of all, we're talking about Aaron. Do you know who Aaron is in scripture? Aaron is Moses' brother, and Aaron was appointed to be high priest, and he was anointed to be high priest, to serve as the priest for the people. The high priest then was the chief, chief religious representative of the nation of Israel. And what's being referenced here by David is when, when the high priest, when Aaron was anointed, when, when he was uh, consecrated, set apart to be the high priest of Israel in Exodus. It's recorded a few times, not just in Exodus. But not just Aaron. He's, he's really, I think, referring to maybe all of the priests, all of the religious leaders. His mention is symbolic of all who had come after him. So that's the first thing to keep in mind is we're talking about the anointing of the high priest. Now that, that raises a question. What is anointing? What does that mean? What's that about? Well, it, There's a handful of different things that that fall under this category of anointing in 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 the ancient Near East. Um, I'll just mention two. One one would be this idea of of a hygienic anointing. You know, in in Luke uh, chapter 7, Jesus says to Simon, Hey, you, you didn't even wash my feet. You didn't anoint my feet. You didn't do anything. Well, in an arid climate like that, your hands would crack and get dry. And so would your feet walking around in sandals in the dusty Land And so one of the things you would do is you would anoint your hands and your feet or any part of your skin that was exposed with oil so it didn't crack and fester and get nasty. <laughs> you might call that lotion, right? I've got some on my desk. I put some lotion on. Same thing. Another type of anointing, though, that's not the anointing in view here. The anointing in view here is, is the anointing of, a, of a, sometimes prophets, 
priests and kings were anointed to be set apart and consecrated to serve God. And Aaron, when he was anointed, they had a certain oil, a precious oil, it's described. See, David says the precious oil on the head. Well, the oil for use in the tabernacle for anointing was, there was a special recipe that God laid out for him in Exodus. And and that was the only thing it was supposed to be used for. It was incredibly fragrant. It smelled great. And they would, they'd, they'd either pour it over the head or smear it or wipe it. And it would have been poured over Aaron's head to anoint him, to set him apart as the priest. Now, one thing about Aaron is the high priest, he had a, a special uh, uniform, for lack of a better way to say it, that he wore. And part of that was he had a robe and over it an ephod and they were, uh, they were this bright blue and red and purple wool. And on the front of, of the, the ephod that came over was uh, sewn into it 12 stones of different colors that all represented the colors of the flags of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it was all symbolic for Aaron being the representative before God of, of all the people. So now with that in mind, when David says uh, the oil, how, the precious oil that's poured over the head, that God set Aaron apart to teach them, to to love them, to intercede for them. And it flows down onto his beard and from his beard onto the collar of his robes. In other words, over all of God's people. That God would give blessing to Aaron and then from Aaron to all of the people. And, And there's unity in that, that they're all consecrated to worship God, to be set apart as his. I think that's the picture that David's painting here of unity. That, that, that their unity is found in being set apart and consecrated for God, just like Aaron was set apart and consecrated for him at his anointing. Does that make sense? That's how I understand it. There's some other ways to, to look at it, but I think that makes the most sense in looking at the text. And in the same way, for us, we find our unity in Jesus Christ, in who we worship, in who our king is. The people were, were separated. The, the simile probably intended... Uh, to evoke in them the fragrance of this oil and how good and pleasant it was when Aaron was set apart to worship God and when the people were set apart to worship God. It's a good and pleasant thing. David's pointing to the fact that the source of their unity isn't in everyone liking the same things or being involved in the same things or living in the same places. Their source of unity is in who they worship. For us, it's in Jesus Christ. He gives a second analogy, not just the the oil flowing over Aaron's head, but uh, one that that gives this idea of refreshment. Look at verse 3. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Mount Hermon is over 9,000 feet above sea level, is, I should say, over 9,000 feet above sea level. And it's way to the north. It's in Syria. And, and it's way to the north of where they're at in Jerusalem. So I don't think David's literally saying that the dew that falls on Mount Hermon, uh, like somehow is just miraculously transported over and falls on Mount Zion, a couple hundred miles away. I think what he's saying is just like the dew comes down incredibly heavy on Mount Hermon, so when it comes, when God's blessing, when God's people come and dwell on Mount Zion, it's refreshing, it's good. It's pleasant. There's a superabundance of dew on Mount Zion, and there's the superabundance of unity as people worship the Lord, or excuse me, on Mount Hermon, and the superabundance of unity on Mount Zion is there the people gather to worship the Lord. 
There's unity found when we worship and sing and gather together. Now, I think there's one other thing that David implies here as he writes this. There's a, there's a Hebrew word that you can't see in this that's repeated three times in these two verses. And that, that word is called uh, yarad. And it means uh, running down or descending. The oil that descends down Aaron's head, then it descends down, runs down off his beard onto the collar of his robe. And, and the dew that descends down onto the Mount of Zion. And all of these things are described as good and pleasant, just like unity. And I think David's making the connection that every good and perfect gift, unity including, descends down from the Father of lights, like James writes in chapter 1, verse 17. That unity ultimately is a gift of God. It's something he gives us. And it's a good gift. It's a good gift. Unity, like all good gifts, is from above. It's bestowed to us. It's a blessing from God. And it brings life. The fourth thing I notice here is that that unity brings life. Look at it. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. When there's unity in a church, there's life. There's life in a church when there's unity. There's joy in singing. Instead of praise him under open skies, this is a weird song, I don't know the words. It's no praise him under open skies. Everything breathing, praising God in the company of all who love the king. Amen? Listen, when there's unity, there's life. I can attest to this. There's been, there's been days in our church where there hasn't been unity. And you know what? <laughs> These, those days are long past, thank Jesus. But, but those days are hard days. And those are days where I don't know if I want to go on Sunday. I don't know if I want to go into the office today because I don't know who's going to call. <laughs> I don't know if I fill in the blank. But when there's unity, like God has given to us and blessed us with in recent years, it's a joy to serve. It's a joy to lead. It's a joy to teach. It's a joy to, to be here with you in the company of all who love the king. But unity doesn't come by accident. It is a gift of God, but it's one of those gifts that we have to tend to, that we have to steward, that we have to work hard toward. And, and some of the ways we do that, I'll just mention a few of these and then we'll, we'll kind of close and pray. But 110 groups, I've already mentioned it already in talking about unity in a family. 110 groups is a way we promote unity. You ever notice, maybe you're new, you ever notice in your bulletin there's this whole list of questions there every week? By God's grace, Tim gives a lot of time to that, writing questions based on what I'm going to preach that Sunday. The idea is that you're involved in a smaller family of people, and every week or every other week you get together and you study those things and you take what you learned Sunday and it gets pulled out into the week. And now instead of everybody studying their own thing, going different directions, we're all kind of learning and studying and growing the same way. And that brings unity. It's important. And it brings unity because people are known. Because the reality is, I can't know everything that's going on in everyone's life and, and, and know to pick up the phone every time something happens. I, I just, some, a lot of times, I just don't know. But when you're, in, when you're in a smaller group, you can be known. You can be known. People love you and care about you and 
reach out to you. And then when that happens, suddenly you're connected more and there's unity and it, it, it eliminates this, this chance for bitterness to form in your heart because, oh, they didn't reach out. They didn't, that whatever didn't happen. It creates unity. Another way we prioritize unity is you hear me talk a lot about a two-fisted theology, two-handed theology. You've got a closed fist and an open hand, Right? And in the closed fist goes everything that we believe about Jesus and everything that if I let go of this, I'm not a Christian anymore if I drop it. But in this hand, in this hand goes some things where um, I have conviction on it, um, uh, you know, in, in terms of different aspects of theology, or maybe it's just a preference. And I know that if I let go of this, if I turn my hand over and I drop it, I've still got this. So I don't need to hold on to this so tightly. And things that go in this hand are are styles of ministry, styles of music, the color of the carpet, (laughs) the programs that we offer. Because you know what? We're holding on to this and our unity is in this, not in this hand. Our unity is here. Amen. I could list a whole bunch of other things. And you'll hear me continue to hammer them over and over. You've heard me hammer them before. But, but know that it's a choice for us to choose unity. It's a choice for me and it's a choice for you. And the big choice comes down to this. Will you honor Jesus first? Will you hold tight to these things? And will you love your church as a family? And recognize that families are messed up. But families are committed to one another. And families move together, move forward together as a group, loving Jesus and honoring him because he's a good big brother and we have a great, great dad in the Father. Amen? Amen. Let me pray and then we'll sing and call to morning and uh, head over and have some lunch. Father, thanks for Jesus and uh, thanks for your grace to us through him and the unity that you provide to us through him. Jesus, I do. I, I pray about it often that you would continue to protect us through your spirit, that you would continue to give us um, just a spirit of unity and of joy and of togetherness as a church family. Lord, we don't get it perfect. I don't get it perfect. I never will. Um, that's why we need you. But, but I do pray that you'd help us to grow, to be more like you, Jesus, to be more uh, forgiving of one another, bearing with one another, um, keeping you at the forefront of our church. Jesus, you are the senior pastor, not me. This is your church. And uh, we want to honor you and be unified around you together. Because how good and pleasant it is when your people dwell together in unity. Father, thanks for Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen.